Hey guys, I'm Desi Garcia and welcome to the Candle in a Dark Room podcast, where I show you that no matter what darkness you've been through, you can find the light within to guide yourself out. Where I tell you that it's okay not to always be okay and that it's okay to ask for help. We shed the code of shame and reclaim our power by telling our truth. I sit down with experts and survivors themselves to discuss all things trauma and healing. This podcast is to help you all remember that you are not alone in your healing journey. We are also now a nonprofit foundation that offers resources to survivors and their loved ones. Come listen and see that no matter how dark things may seem, you can find the light within yourself. And if you're not a survivor yourself, you can still be a light in someone else's darkness. Be a voice for the voiceless and be a candle in a dark room. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Candle in a Dark Room. And thank you all for being here. Hey guys, this is Desi and welcome back to the Candle in a Dark Room podcast. Today, my special guest is Jamie Johnson. Jamie is a lived experience expert on domestic sex trafficking and the chief executive officer and founder of the Sisters of the Streets. She also holds the title of mother, motivational speaker, advocate, first responder, consultant, social media marketer, entrepreneur, and activist. Sisters of the Streets focuses on empowering those impacted by sexual exploitation. Mrs. Johnson integrates her lived experience into her work by providing mentorship and resources for those desiring to transition out of that lifestyle, while focusing on empowering the community to be a part of the solutions while identifying and addressing root issues that allow exploitation to thrive while encouraging harm reduction practices. So, Jamie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm super excited to have you and for you to just share your experiences with us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Of course. So why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and then what led to where you are now? Yeah. So, I mean, backtracking to childhood, I guess that's where it all starts for all of us, is I come from, you know, a household that did the best that they could. My parents were both present in my life, but we're not married. We're not, or they were married, but we're not together. So I had a lot of instability from very early on. I think before I was probably five, before I was in kindergarten, we probably moved at at least 10 to 15 times, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. So we really just were constantly bouncing from place to place. My mom was kind of what I call a habitual runner. So if she didn't like things, we kind of just changed our environment. And so that was really the beginning of my childhood. I was always a daddy's girl and always really wanted to go be with dad, but he was having to work lots of hours in order to just provide and pay child support and just keep a roof over his head. And so that instability, I think, without knowing really created really kind of put early on in my mind that if you don't like something or don't like how something is going, you kind of have the control to change it. And Mm -hmm. commitment issues probably were, were bred in me very early. By the time I was five, my mom decided to, or she had met a, a guy that she fell madly in love with, and she decided to move us to where I considered to be from, which is Oceanside, California, mm-hmm. and that's my hometown, and that's where we planted roots, and 
and they had a very domestic violence driven and fueled relationship. They were both alcoholics. She was more of a happy alcoholic and he was a very abusive alcoholic. And so that mixture what you know was a combination for just a lot of drama in the house a lot of things that my siblings and I I have a younger brother and an older sister that we were exposed to a lot of things that we probably shouldn't have been exposed to very early on I had middle child syndrome very very deeply and so I was always trying to just figure out where I fit in my brother was the young Mm -hmm. one and the cute one and he was into sports and things like that and my sister was the older one and she was the gorgeous one and she was a model and she was the beautiful one and so I didn't really know where I fit in and I started just trying to seek attention through whatever that was whether and I learned that I could get attention through things like lying and manipulation pretty early on because whether it was negative attention or positive attention it was still attention for me and so I was constantly trying to figure out how to move back with my dad that didn't happen too much until it got to the point where the fights in my house were resulted in, you know, both party, my mom and her boyfriend going to jail. And so we were being left home a lot by ourselves. Early on, I got molested by my mom's boyfriend. I believe I was like six, six or seven, but that wasn't something that I discussed with anyone or told anybody. Um, Is this the same boyfriend that she was with? Yeah, he was physically abusive to my siblings as well. I'm not sure why he decided to be um, sexually abusive with me. It could have been my age. It could have been he was under the influence. I don't really know. And so with that kind of just that dynamic, the fights just kept getting really, uh, really bad and got worse and worse. And eventually we had to go live with my aunt for a few weeks, maybe a month until we could figure out our living situation. At that time, it's pretty blurry, but I know my mom and him stayed together for a while. They were together for a total of like eight years. So it was a lot of time Mm -hmm. for them to be in this toxic relationship. Lots of back and forth. My mom left the state a few times and I refused to go. So I was back with my dad and just moving a lot and just unstable. And by the time I was in middle school, well, I guess backtrack a little bit from the time I was about 11, I was always working and I was busting tables or waitressing. So my mom had spurts where she was stable and my mom had spurts where she liked to drink a lot. So it really just kind of depended on the the circumstances and what was going on in our mm-hmm. in her life. And so I started working really early on. I think a lot some of it was to obviously help with the finances, but I think a lot of it was too to have some type of sense of control mm-hmm. of my life. And so I didn't really spend a lot of time with friends, um, going to, you know, going to parties and things like that. I more so was always spending my time working and making money and having that mentality. And so going into middle school, I was pretty decent student. I was on track to be a high GPA student, but something in eighth grade happened that just kind of shifted where my GPA just dropped extremely low. And then when I got to high school, I just stopped caring about school. I started, I got my first boyfriend. My very first relationship ended up being a domestic violence relationship itself. And so, but that pattern was very normal to me. I thought that that's Mm -hmm. kind of just how relationships worked. You didn't know what a healthy relationship looked like at that point. No, not at all. Not at all. And so I thought that if somebody is mean to you and someone hits you, 
issue, it's okay as long as they apologize. And you become kind of addicted to that cycle of that romancing where somebody is so sorry for the first couple days and then it kind of goes back. So you don't know which is really that person. Are they really this nice person? Are they really the person that's being abusive? And that was something that I I witnessed from very young. So I didn't Mm -hmm. know much different. So going into high school, I had my first suspension early on. I started ditching school. I got suspended for drinking Crown Royal, I think, in in that (laughs) class out of a flask. Yeah, I wasn't even trying to hide it. It was like straight out of a flask, like in the middle of a test. It was stupid. So that kind of trickled just a real, just like kind of self-destructive behavior. Yeah, real, real pretty early. I started seeing that boys paid attention to me but you it was like in a you had to give something to get the attention and I ended up getting pregnant with my first boyfriend because nobody was guiding me teaching me about the birds and the bees so you want to call it and I didn't know that sex equaled pregnancy somehow Mm. because you know those things we overlook that if they're not taught to us, we don't just right. inherently know them. And so I ended up getting pregnant. I told my dad and basically the answer to that was for me to get an abortion. And we didn't really ever talk about it. Like it really just, it happened and we moved forward. I got an abortion, went to my softball game two hours after it and kind of mm. just, just deleted that memory. I finally ended up breaking it off with that particular boyfriend and ended up meeting another guy in my apartment complex. By this time, I was back living with my mom. Met a guy in my apartment complex who was 27. I was 15 at the time. So mm-hmm. again, nobody guiding me. I didn't know that that was wrong. I just thought that right. it was cool to have an older boyfriend. And so that boyfriend dated for maybe two and a half, three months at the most. Fast forward to a few years ago, I had missed memory. Like I had completely blanked out that time period with him. I remembered him, but didn't know... I couldn't remember any of our dates, any of our time together. And through some triggers and through some talk therapy, I realized that that was my first experience with exploitation. He had been roofing my drinks when we would hang out and having his friends come to, to rape me and do whatever they wanted to do. Well, I was kind of incoherent and he was getting either money, usually drugs, but sometimes money um, mm-hmm. out of that. And so that was a memory that I guess my body blacked out. You blocked it out. You disassociated it. Yeah, for sure. And so he was drugging you. You figured out like just based on what you remember or do you? Yeah. Okay. So it was through basically, it's funny because it was actually a song that triggered their memory. There's a Keith Sweat song that I constantly, like my whole adulthood, like I would fast forward when it came on Pandora or like skip it. And I just didn't know why I would skip it, Mm. but I just didn't like the feeling that I had. But there was one time I was driving to a conference and I was on the freeway and I happened, my phone happened to like fly on the side of the seat. And so the music, I couldn't control the music off my phone and the song came on and I'm driving and like, the song had to play because I couldn't reach my telephone and it, my whole body like just went into shock. And like, I just started having like, it was like one of those like deja vu dreams where you're like awake and you can, you see something happening, but you you feel like it's happening to you, but it also feels like a dream. It was really foggy. Yeah. I pull over and realize that I was having like a flashback and all these like memories, like a movie reel almost started like playing in my head. Playing in your head. Yeah. Yeah. It was really trippy. It was so trippy. (laughs) That's how I remember a lot of people explaining it. Is it like back in the olden days when they used to have the, 
Yeah. Just like a bunch of pictures just flashing through your head. Yeah. It was really interesting. Obviously at the time it wasn't interesting. It sucked at the time, but how it happened and it really helped me dissect like how our bodies hold trauma and things like that. It's crazy because you don't realize how incredible our brains are. You know what I mean? Especially like not like blocking us out of those times, you know, and not remembering so, so much time, like two, three months, like that's a big, you know, that's a good size gap for you, like not to remember anything. And, but, but subconsciously your body remembered our body holds trauma more than we even realize. So hearing that song triggered that trauma in your body. And so that's so interesting. It was really interesting. And I immediately had to call a mentor that I had trusted at the time. And then my therapist immediately after and was like, what's happening? I don't know. And (laughs) she was like, just come in and talk to me. Like, we'll talk, work through it. And it's actually, you know, when I look at two to three months, actually for me, that's not much of a gap because when I look at, it makes me wonder, even when I look at my childhood, I like, I don't remember maybe but one or two birthdays. I don't remember, but like one or two, it's weird. And I don't know if that's just a normal thing. I feel like when people like you and I who grew up with trauma, like especially domestic violence trauma from our parents and things like that, I'm the same as you. I have very little memory. I don't even remember one birthday. I have every like bits and pieces like throughout my childhood of certain things, but I don't remember any birthday parties. I don't remember anything like that. And I think it's, again, it's just a defense mechanism that our body our brain is just protecting us from, but it's crazy. Like I literally, the first memory I have is maybe like eight years old. So it's, yeah, it's so crazy how we just kind of have such big blocks throughout our life that to protect us. And so, yeah, you don't remember your childhood, but you won't, but you don't remember a couple months, you know? It is weird. And it's, and it's the same with my experience in my exploitation. Like I, you know, was in and out of it for from 20 to 27 and probably collectively, I can probably maybe if I'm lucky, remember collectively a year worth of memories. Mm-hmm. And it's not chronological. It's still, it's very scattered. So it is our brain protecting us from mm-hmm. things. I'm a very big believer that when we're ready to, to address and heal certain things, that that's when it's going to happen. And I, and apparently when I was coming up on my thirties, um, you know, that's when my body was ready. That's when God told me that I was ready to address this memory with, because it, cha- it changed my narrative, you know, like, because I mm-hmm. thought that my exploitation started in my twenties as an adult. And so therefore my narrative was a, a lot different because for me, there's a big difference between, you know, and some advocates are going to hate me for saying this, but to me, there's a difference between human trafficking and CSEC or commercial sexual exploitation of a child versus patterns and vulnerabilities that create an adult. Not to say that either needs less resources or needs, right. but I do feel like as a 20 year old, there were things that I knew or didn't know or different decisions I could have made versus when I'm 15 getting roofied, I don't right. literally don't have control over the situation. And again, that's not to say that anyone's victimization greater than Any less. It's just to say that we have to not umbrella the term human trafficking because it takes away from individualized experiences. But so if you don't mind me asking about that. So, okay. So what you're saying is, so like compared to like when you were 15 and being roofied and all of those things that were happening with, with your ex and then they happening again in your twenties, you're, um, what you're saying is like in your twenties, you had more of control than you realized. 
for compared sure. to when you're 15. Oh, I absolutely agree for with sure. that. Yeah, it is. And I think that what is similar in everything, though, in all the experiences is the vulnerabilities that are created, right? Like, so it's absolutely. it's not, it's the emotion that's attached to that need. So I always say that something, because we can list all these factors of like, you know, when it comes to things like, okay, say sex trafficking, for example, we, people are like, well, what? So like, you can list a list of vulnerabilities, right? I try to break it down into four categories. Like there's either a need, a desire, a want, or a pattern, right? And so we fall into, all of us fall into those categories at some point in our life. And a need is not necessarily like, I need to eat. I need food. A need can be, I need to feel accepted, or I need to feel Mm -hmm. loved, or I need to feel like my mom cares about me, or I need to feel like someone's proud of me. And so when we talk about vulnerabilities, we're oftentimes giving people in society like these lists of red flags and like who's the more vulnerable population and we're compartmentalizing and, and dividing society mm-hmm. right and like humanity when really the the humane needs that we all have make us all susceptible to abuse and to things like greed and to things that are going to get us to agree to do things that we normally wouldn't if those needs were right. fulfilled and right. so regardless of what my ex did to me there was something there, there was a reason I was in that relationship in, in the first place. In the first place. I was in there. I was in that relationship because it made me feel good to have attention put on me. Um, it made me feel good that somebody was telling me I was pretty. It made somebody, it made me feel good to feel like, oh, this older dude, like he could have any woman. He probably couldn't. Right. He was pretty sure he was pretty bummy. Like, but from my 15 year old eyes, he yeah. wasn't. He was an older guy and he shows you all that. Probably didn't have any swag, like whatever. But to me, I was like, I'm like, okay, this guy, he could have whatever girl he wants. And he wants me like not knowing that like, okay, homeboy's a pedophile. Right. So at that point you were a teenager. So then from that moment when you went and saw your therapist, what kind of happened after that? So that relationship ended. I don't really remember how or why. I don't, I don't know. We just stopped seeing each other. I then, I was still in school at this time, barely making it. The only reason that I was in school was because I I was in sports. I was always on academic probation because my grades were shit, but I was, I loved sports. So that was the only kind of thing that and my public speaking journalism class, I really liked that class. Okay. And that was it. And so I stayed in school. When I was 16, I met a guy that was a couple years older than me. He had just just graduated. Nice guy. Met him. I actually met him when I was at a volleyball game. I met him. I was like, oh, he's kind of cute. And I had my friend introduce me. And so, you know, he liked me, whatever. I ended up getting pregnant four months, four months-ish later. Didn't want to go through an abortion again. And so I, we decided that I was going to have my daughter, who's my oldest daughter, uh, Tiana, and she's almost 16 now. Mm -hmm. And so I, I tried to stay in school, but my grades were already so bad by the time I was in then being the pregnant girl at school. Like that's a little, yeah. awkward, you know, so yeah. I just needed to drop out and they sent me to an alternative school and I was like eight months pregnant sitting in these classes. Like this is some BS. I just want right. to drop out. Like I'm, yeah. hot. I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. And I just drop out and the counselor was like, yeah, sure. And so, yeah, that's a whole nother. Not, story. not even trying. Yeah. Not even right. trying There's to help. Points of intervention. Right. And right. where people don't intervene when they should. Right. So I ended up dropping out my 
daughter's father, he was, you know, we don't talk a lot about the other side. We talk a lot about the person who's the victim or et cetera. We don't talk a lot about the other side as well, though, of like, he had dreams and goals too, right? Like it wasn't like he was on track to get a basketball scholarship and go play for some university in Alaska. And he had to change his whole, you know, he went into the military instead because people told him that's what he has to do. He needs to take care of his family. He, well, you made a decision, you take care of him. So I ended up, we had our daughter, we moved into military housing. I started working full time. I got pregnant again by the time I was 19 with my second daughter, Talia, who is 13 now. And we, you know, we had a, an okay marriage, I guess. We were more friends than anything. He was, but it little, wasn't abusive or anything like that. No, 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 no. It wasn't okay. abusive, but it was very much like we were young. Like we didn't Just know. Young, growing yeah. up together. Yeah. And I got, we got married when I was five months pregnant with my mm. second daughter because that's, People were like, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get married. But, you know, you think about your mindset at 19 and he was, what, 21. We didn't even know who we were as people. Right. Yeah. I had already been a mom for two years. It's like we didn't even know. I'd never even got a chance to figure out what I like, what I want to do with my life. Mm -hmm. And that manifested in our marriage. He, he ended up, he doesn't even like women. He has two kids with a woman. He's, he actually has a boyfriend now. He he doesn't, he's not even heterosexual. So that's interesting. Yeah. So like you said, you guys just kind of grew up together and figured out who you were because, and then you ended up being completely opposite. But then, you know, we didn't know we had no communication skills. Like we were just doing this playing house thing and mess. Right. And I was by myself a lot all the time anyways, because he was on deployment, found out he was cheating, you know, and I'm a a woman. So I did my due diligence as a woman and investigated and found (laughs) out. And I'm like, okay, like, who is this woman he's cheating on me with? And I'm like, oh, this is a man. Like, that's (sighs) different. Like, okay. That in itself without me realizing put this huge like insecurity on me because I'm like mm-hmm. did I turn him gay like what right. you know and he, I can see how that would be really hard to comprehend as a as a woman and like your feminism like your feminism and all that and like wait what the heck like am I not good enough and you know having all those questions that's probably so hard especially being so young yeah and the fact that we didn't have any emotional intelligence to that manner where he didn't know how to handle what he was feeling he felt a lot right. of shit. and so he just dipped out like he just left and mm. he he was gone for a long time and i'm 19 and i have two little babies under the age of 3 and i'm like wait like culture shock like i just i yeah I was not aware of like community resources. I was not aware of things like government assistance and things like that, the extent that I am now. And the military was not being helpful in trying to figure out like our bank account situation and things like that. So thankfully we still had housing, but in that transitional period, when he just kind of left, um, I went into this mindset. I lost my job simultaneously too. So I was waitressing and I lost my job just as he was kind of deciding to leave. And so I was really in like this panic mode of also in this mode of like, I want to live up my teenage years cause I didn't get to, and right. it's to go and do whatever he wants. So let me go do whatever I want. And I ended up, I was building vulnerabilities with, within my household. I was a single mom now. I was emotionally distraught because my husband left me. 
then also left me for somebody else. I was disconnected from my family. I was in a position where I was financially insecure because we, he took the bank account and kind of tapped me out of that. And your family, you said you were disconnected. So you weren't, your parents weren't involved at that point anymore. I mean, they weren't not involved, but they weren't, it wasn't to the point where I felt like I could call on Count them. On them. Right. What was going on. And so that created this, uh, my, again, my financial security was coming into play because, you know, at first we were okay. I had a little money put to the side, but at, you know, eventually like we need more groceries and these kids eat a lot and gas to be able to go look for new work. And I can't, I can't do that. And so there came a night fast forward where I decided to go out with one of my really good friends at that time to a club, just a regular club. And I was determined to get drunk and like meet a guy and have like my first one night stand. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. This is, I was just really vulnerable. Like I was just in a space (laughs) where I just wanted attention and I just wanted to not have to worry about my kids. And I mean, I was 19. And so I went out and I met this guy and I was like, Oh, he's cute. I was drunk. I don't know if he was actually cute or not, (laughs) but, um, you know, my homegirl that I was with, she was like, no, don't talk to him. Like, I guess she had heard that he was like, he had girls that he, like, he was kind of a pimp. I didn't know what a pimp and a prostitute were. Okay. I didn't know that this was a real life thing. I didn't know this happened in the world. Um, and so I met him and, you know, my friend, you know, my friend's like, oh, my friend wants to talk to you. And and so we ended up talking. I ended up going home with him and sleeping with him. And we I felt like we connected like he was cool, like he was my age. It's not like he was some predator Way older. Yeah, yeah. He was my age, and I liked him. He was cool, and that was that. And so when I went home, in the midst of that, though, because I was drunk, I was telling him everything that I was going through in my life. I was telling him I had kids at home. You know, my husband just left me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Lost my job, and so I basically presented him with like all your vulnerability. Yeah, all my vulnerabilities, not knowing what his lifestyle was already. Right. So the next day we talked on the phone and he, you know, he basically was just like, you know, like, I like you. I want to help you with your kids, but we're about money around here. And I was like, you want me to sell drugs or like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't, cause I was super square and like super green and didn't know any of this. And so he was like, no, we're about money. And I didn't really still know what he meant. I was like, you know what? Like you're disrespectful. Like, don't call me. Don't talk to me anymore. And, you know, like I think a week passed and I still didn't have a job. Food was getting lower. I still want to talk to my kid's dad. And I called him and I was like, you know what? I was like, you told me that you could help me make like a thousand dollars a day. Like, what do I have to do to make that money? for? And it's for my kids. Right. And he was like, yeah. And um, he was like, just get dressed really nice. Like, get a sitter. Like, we're going to go out. And I was like, oh, okay, we're about to go to the club. About to take me on a date. Yeah, no. And so I got dressed, went and picked him up, which I, that should have been a red flag. Like, <laughs> wait, 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 I'm, I'm picking you up. <laughs> Why am I picking you up? But, yeah. Uh, so, but with that, you know, setting into more vulnerabilities, I had showed him where I lived. I had given him my ID because he was like, well, wherever we're going, well, for some reason I had given him my ID. I think it was because he didn't want wherever we were going in case police pulled me over. It was just a lot. You weren't 21 yet. Yeah, it was all happening pretty fast. And so 
we went to El Cajon Boulevard, which is San Diego. In San Diego, that's the track or the blade, which is mm-hmm. where the prostitution goes on. And he gave me some condoms and he was like, get out. And if anybody that's white or Mexican pulls over and has at least $100, do what they ask you and then hold the money. And then when you're done with these three condoms, like come back to the car and I'll give you more. And I was like, say what? <laughs> I was like, yeah. Hold on. (laughs) Yeah, like trying to comprehend what he just asked. Yeah, I was so just like out of my element. And I'm like, okay. And I remember, I remember when I wanted, when I was like, no, like I'm not about to do that. And I, I don't know if it was in my mind. I don't know if it was my trauma or if it actually happened, but I remember seeing his face and something kind of seemed like it switched. And I realized in that moment, I'm like, I don't know this dude. Like, I'm like, I don't know shit about him. Um, and so for me with that, me saying no, and it looking like he got ang- was getting angry, reminded me of my mom's boyfriend when I was younger. And so immediately I was triggered, didn't know it was a trigger at that time, obviously. And so then all these things that I had just messed up on flashed in front of my head, like, oh my gosh, I told him I have daughters. Like I told him where I live. Like he has my ID, Mm. like we're in my car. Like, oh my gosh, like what did I do? And so I just agreed. Like I just, I did it. And you felt like you had to for your safety and everything. I I did, you know, I don't know. I don't know at this point, like when I go through my story and I tell my story, I go through a different process every time. I I don't really know what I was feeling in that moment. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was fear. I don't know if it was the fact that I felt like maybe I could make him like me more if I did what he asked. I don't know. I don't know. And I think that's part of the healing journey. Yeah. And that's what I think that's honestly just kind of a, I mean, honestly, just a really fucked up situation to where it's one of those things that you're like, okay, what do I do here? I either, I run, do I stay? Do I, you know, I think you were also probably in that kind of freeze mode of like, oh shit, like yeah, this actually so. happened. Okay. So then it was a long night. We'll just say that it was a, yeah. a long night. I remember, um, I remember turning my first date. I remember exactly what I was wearing. I was wearing these ugly ass white high heels. They looked like those like old school. Like I thought they were so cute and they were not. Like when I look <laughs> at old pictures, I'm like, what was I thinking? And this little red like mini dress that I thought was, it made my butt look nice. I had worn it because I thought we were going to the club, right? Right. I looked nice for him. And so just so out of my element, like walking down this street where it was it was nighttime it was dark it was the hood like you know it's the track so it's d-boys and it's other prostitutes i would say you could see other prostitutes and you could see like what they were doing and all that yeah but i didn't know they were prostitutes because i didn't know i I didn't know that that's what i was doing in that moment you still had it figured out what was happening i didn't even know i didn't have a name for it because i didn't know that prostitution was a thing um okay which goes into why awareness is very important and why education yep. is important. I didn't have a name for it. And so I turned my first date. I remember that the guy's face, I don't remember what I did. I know that I got a hundred dollars and I know when I got out of his car, I started walking again and <laughs> these girls, they were in, there's a Jack in the box near where I was walking and they were in the drive through or like parked in the drive through. They had a baby and they had this nice BMW. It was three pretty ass girls. And they were, they were like, Oh, you're so pretty. Like they were talking really nice to me. And I was like, Oh, Hey. And you know, they had a baby in the car and I'm like, okay. They're like, Oh, like our brother just got home from 
and they had said something before that they were like, oh, she's so green. And I didn't know what that meant. And so yeah. I, they were like, oh, our brother just got home from Iraq and he wants to see a really pretty girl. He's got $400 for the hour. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like I already did this. Like I need Technically, I need $300 because I have three condoms, $100 each. Right. So I'm like, oh, I could just go do this and I don't have to, I could go home for the night. Like, that's all I was thinking. And so I got in their car and they took me to the strip club and their pimp came out. And so it was like this whole messy situation. I didn't know that that's the situation I was getting into. And actually, by this time, I had turned two dates because I remember I had $200. That's right. $200. So the pimp comes out. And he's like, he's like, what's up? Like, whoever you're with got you out. He, like, he was trying to get me to come with him. And thankfully, he was nice enough to get, you know, I was like, no, I can't. Like, I have a guy waiting for me and he has my car and just so green and like so scared yeah. and not knowing what was going to happen. And he's like, all right, well, I'll take you back to like where we got you from. But like, I'm gonna have to take your money. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Like, whatever. So he took my money. The girl took me back, thankfully, because it could have went a lot worse, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and so I was gone for a long period of time, though. And so when I got back, you know, the dude that I was with, he was pissed. He's like, I told you not to talk to black guys because that was the only instruction he gave me. Don't talk to black guys and mm. only take $100 or more. And I was like, I didn't know, like, I'm sorry. He's like, yeah, well, you're a dumb bitch. Like you owe me now. Like, and so now he's like, I'm gonna let you make it up to me though. So you owe me, like, we're going to leave tonight because you clearly are going to get us caught up. But tomorrow, like you owe me from tonight and you owe me for tomorrow. And so that's kind of how my pattern with him started. Like um, owing him. Yeah. But at the same time, I liked him. And so mm. being used to that abusive cycle, I... It was like on ten, like on a hundred, like it became an abusive cycle. But in my mind, abuse meant love in some ways. And so I liked him and I thought that we were going to run off in this, you know, it was supposed to be three months that we were going to do this and save enough money to get our own place. And three months turned into six months and six months turned into a year and a year turned into two years. And, and was this like daily at this point? Like, or how often were, were you? From that night forward, yeah, it, it became, it was crazy how it just became automatic. Like it just was, it, that just became a lifestyle. And in that process, fairly quickly, we, I lost, I basically let him move into my base housing and he was having like his other pimp partners and pimp friends and their girls come to our house. So our house turned into like this big, whatever, like, I want to say brothel because we didn't turn dates out of it, but it was just like the spot because I was the only person with the car, the only person with the house. And okay. my, but my daughters were still there at this point. And so I lived very close to the El Cajon Boulevard. I lived one exit away from there. And so basically there was two, he had me and another girl at this time. And then another girl came along fairly shortly after that. So there was three of us and two of us had kids. And so we basically would just take shifts. Like two of us would be, mm -hmm. at the house. two of us would be on the track. One of us would be at the house watching the kids. He would be doing whatever he was doing. That kind of became our, our pattern. And eventually police started getting called to the house. It started impacting my daughters. Eventually we got kicked out of my military housing and that's when we started living in hotels. But in the midst of that, I knew that I didn't want my daughters in hotels. And so I let them go stay with godparents. The godparents eventually tried to keep me from seeing them and talking to them and communicating with them because they found out 
that I had um, at this point, I had six months into it, I had done a pornography because that was an industry he wanted us to get into. And somebody found out about that and they told me I was an unfit mom. And so I had to call my mom and tell my mom, like, hey, I need to go get my kids back. Like they need somewhere to stay. I, and I said, so basically, that was six, six, seven months into it. I had to start telling my family kind of what was going on. And mm. from that point forward, I was in hotels on the street sometimes and him and I were a lot back and forth. You know, a lot happens in between those times. You know, there's a lot of things that are are not discussed. You know, the I think it during my time in that lifestyle I had multiple pimps. Um sometimes I didn't have a pimp. There's sometimes it got to the point where at something in me shifted at some some point or another where that just became who I was and mm. whether I the further the more I did it the further and further I felt like I got away from ever finding like who Jamie is and the further and further I detached from the people that I grew up with I didn't feel like I, I would still go home but I didn't feel like I, I felt like everybody knew what I was doing I felt dirty and I felt like super judged and then I just embraced the I say you didn't both feel like you belonged anywhere but at that point being yeah that was that was where I was accepted and I was like well shoot if I'm gonna be a hoe then let me be the best hoe and it was like it was almost like this weird complex of like that seeking going back to my childhood seeking something to be good at something to be noticed for something and it's like oh well I'm good at this like so Mm -hmm. maybe this is what I meant to do and you start psyching yourself out to be able to to um okay with it yeah to cope with what you're doing because otherwise you are either going to end up killing yourself, you're going to end up strung out, you're going to end up hurting somebody, whatever the case is. And so very quickly, I adapted to that personality and I became very savage. I became very just like cold and disconnected from the world. I'm like, I'm going to hurt you before you hurt me. And a lot of things- At this point, were you using as well? Because I know a lot, you know, exploitation is drugs and things like that because they put you basically drug you to do what they want. Yeah. So I won't say that anybody forced me to do drugs. My first experience with cocaine was interesting. That was definitely forced. The guy I was with at the time was like, he was doing coke and he was like, try this. And I was like, no, I don't want to try it. (laughs) And he basically like made me try it. And and I was addicted from that point forward. Okay. Before that, though, it's not like I had never done. I had done. I had pop pills, right? Smoke weed and drank and stuff like that. But I don't think my addiction really manifested until I became dependent in that lifestyle. Once I realized that I could stay up for days at a time and get money, the faster I got the money, the faster I got either good attention or the faster I got to take a break or the faster I got to go home and visit my kids or whatever the scenario was. And so I was always seeking to to make the most money and make it the fastest that I could. And so that just became my life. I started using, I started using a lot. I was doing Coke and Adderall faithfully. I was, then I was mixing it, you know, I became suicidal. And so I was mixing it with pills and alcohol. I wasn't necessarily saying like, oh, I want to kill myself, but I was not necessarily doing anything to not right my body either, you know, and outside of drugs, abuse becomes very 
normal, if it wasn't already normal, rapes and robberies and jail and just all of these things that are just nobody, nobody desires to live in that lifestyle. But like I said, that's all you know at that point. At that point, yeah, and it's very easy to wipe out. When you don't have a sense of identity before you get into this, this develops into who you are. And the further and the more years that pass, the further and further away from the possibility of exiting seemed to become. And so I just was lost. I was just a lost. (laughs) I was just lost. And when it got to the point where... I was, my daughter, my mom was like, yeah, you can't talk to your daughters until you change something about your life. That's when I really started going downhill mentally. I wasn't on drugs at that time, only because the pimp that I was with didn't allow drugs. And so he was really trying to help me get sober. Mm. And he actually was the one who was like, he was the one who was after about a year and a half, he, I, I was sitting in our our bathroom and he was out of town and my wife-in-law at the time the other girl that was with us she was at home and I was in the bathroom just like I'm over it like I want to die like I something has to change like if I can't see my daughters like I can't talk to them like I just don't want to do this anymore like I was it was painful to get up in the morning like I didn't Mm -hmm. want to go to the strip club I didn't want to go I didn't want to do anything I was so stressed out to the point that I was having like blackouts and seizures. Like it was just, I was going to neurologists. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. It was literally just stress. Like my body was just shutting down. And, um, you know, there came a point where he came home and I was like, I want to die. Like, I don't want, like, I can't do this anymore. And he was like, look, he's like, this lifestyle is not for everybody. He's like, you need to be home with your daughters. You need to like, you need, to do something different with your life because you're going to wash up and you're going like this life is going to end up killing you. This isn't, you're not bred for this lifestyle. Hey guys, quick ad break. So as you know, candle in a dark room supports body positivity and self-love in some cases that involves body enhancement and changes. We absolutely support whatever helps you feel your best and most confident self. Even if that means changing something. Our good friend, Dr. Hallen, is an experienced plastic surgeon who is highly dedicated to providing superior patient care. What we love most about him is his heart. He truly cares about his patients, their well-being, and enjoys helping individuals feel their best. Dr. Hallen specializes in many procedures, such as breast augmentation, mommy makeovers, Brazilian butt lifts, and so much more. He is one of the most meticulous and talented surgeons in Utah. If you are looking for a surgeon that will have your best interest in mind, as well as top quality service, we highly recommend Dr. Howland. He's in Draper on 11762 South State Street, Suite 220, and his phone number is 801-571-2020. Tell him that Desi from Candle in a Dark Room sent you. We are so grateful for Dr. Howland and his business. They have been great sponsors for Candle in a Dark Room. So go check them out now. At first I was offended, like, what do you mean I'm not Brett? Like, but I'm thankful and I understand. And so um, when people are like, well, how did you get away? It was a gradual exit. Like it was a gradual I've tried to leave multiple times, not leave a, necessarily a certain pimp or a certain person. I tried to leave that narrative and that lifestyle many times. And this attempt of me being out is my eighth 
is my eighth attempt. And I say is as in like, I never want to get comfortable to the point where I say like, yeah, I'm good. Like I'm out because Mm -hmm. I'm not, my mind can definitely, my mind can go back to survival mode with a quick, you know, I can go back to, I could be homeless tomorrow and I can't really say that if I was sitting here homeless and my children were hungry, that I wouldn't go back to a, a survival pattern. But thank God that I'm equipped with a support system now who wouldn't let me fall to that space because I right. have time to create relationships. So that, how long have you been out like now in this so, my last attempt at trying to go um, to see a client was June of 2000. Oh, this month, um, 2016. Yeah. So, okay. Five, five, five years, your five year anniversary. Awesome. And yeah. so before that, like you said, you would have many attempts, but what do you, so would you go back on your own in that, in that aspect? Because you kind of just felt like you need to go back in that pattern for a while. I would either go back by myself, like I would just dip out, like I would just panic in the middle of the night. Like there's literally times when I'll be at my mom's house safe. I was with my kids, everything that I wanted to be, except I didn't really want to be at my mom's house because that wasn't the best scenario. But there would just be random times I would wake up in the middle of the night and literally like panic. Like I don't, I, I would just panic and I would just pack my shit and I would dip out. And, um, I would go grab a hotel and I was, it was like, it was, it was like, I was drawn to living in a hotel and it was like, I was drawn to having control, what I thought was control of my day to day where I didn't Mm -hmm. have somebody structuring my day where I could be up all night and then I could sleep all day if I want to, or drugs and not anybody say anything to me or just, just selfish, like in a selfish mentality where, I got so accustomed to this life where I didn't have to be accountable or hold myself responsible for anything that that became the addiction. Like the addiction became not having to, to own up to shit, not having self-destructive behavior, self-sabotage. Yeah. Instead of doing the, instead of doing the work to do the opposite. And as much as that's easier, I mean, let's be honest, like there's, that's easier sometimes than doing the work because doing the work can be freaking hard. It can be hard to get out. It can be hard to do the work emotionally. And sometimes I think that's just over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is like, I know, you know, people that have been in this situation and that's the thing. It's like, life just gets too hard. It's too hard to cope and get better than it is to just fail than it is to just go back to a self-destructive behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, like you said before, like the narrative of it being so easy, it being a lot easier to go back to that lifestyle that people think. People think it's easy yeah. to just like get out and run and you're free, you're good to you go. But it's like, well, no, this is what, this is who you've been. This has been your identity for so long. Now what? Like now how do I just pick up the pieces and be okay? You know? So yeah. That's- uh, and we don't, and we don't talk a lot about like, People, we talk a lot about individuals' choices in going backwards or not making different decisions, but we don't talk a lot about the fact that society is a big driver of what pushes us back to not necessarily sex trafficking or our exploitation, but in as Bad a whole, choices. that yeah, or or um, choices that it's like society. Uh, punitizes us and talk, like will talk reckless about us making certain decisions, but then also create these limited opportunities for us to, 
even have we don't even have the capability to make different decisions even if we want to because we're all right. judged off of the worst thing we've ever done you yeah. got like incarcerated individuals that come out they serve their sentences they they can't get jobs can't get housing and they still yeah. are judged off of the yeah. worst thing that they ever did i will forever be there will always be somebody that labels me an addict or a prostitute or somebody who did harm to the community or somebody will always label me those things because we as society are so gun ho on seeing everybody else's faults that we don't even recognize that we're being a part of the problem by yeah. just by just simply judging by just yeah. the fact that somebody can feel my energy when I when I am open with my past as a prostitute and you have a judgment against what prostitution is or what a prostitute looks like or what they act like or what the choices they made to get them there I can energy is real like I can feel that energy and who yeah. wants to sit in a room and be the person that's being judged. Right. And the only reason you're able to be judged, which is crazy to me, is because you choose to be open with your traumas that you are trying to heal from. So literally yep. you're being judged only off of For stuff. being honest. Yeah, for being and everybody Calling in that your room. Truth. Yeah, everyone in that room has something that they have to heal from, but not everybody is willing to heal. And so not everybody's willing to put their shit out there. And I do it in a in a loud way where I but I believe in doing it the way that I'm doing it because I've seen firsthand that by me sharing my most vulnerable moments and my the, the things that people tell me that I should keep to myself the most, those are the times when other people come in and they're like, that's literally a key to unlock. You've helped me. Their, yeah. It gives them permission to tap into that part of their life as well. Well, I think that you being on, well, yeah, and I think that you being honest with your story and telling, like you said, being that elephant in the room, it's hard. But you have chosen to do that because the one person who's in that room is going to hear that. Because the thing is, I mean, I I know for a fact you didn't where you weren't born. And as soon as you started realizing what a job was, oh, I'm going to be a prostitute when I get older. No, right. people don't. That's not how it goes. People don't just grow grow up you know, thinking like they want to be a teacher, thinking they want to be a prostitute. It's not how it goes. There's always a trauma. There's always a root of the issue and how it started and why it started. And I think that's the problem, like you said, with society is no one's willing to go to that route. No one's willing to figure out why that happened or where that trauma started. Instead, it's only the, the easiest thing to do is to, to hash judgment. And that's what, like you said, that's the hard part. And then People don't want to tell their families because their families are disowning them and they don't want to ask for help. So it's easier to just stay in the lifestyle because they don't have anyone they can count on outside. So it's just literally a ripple shit effect of, yeah. you know, going and going. And like you said, it's one of those situations where if you don't have the right support, you can easily get back into it. Yeah. And I mean, even with the right support, you still are, we all still have to live our journeys, right? Like we all still have to go through our journeys. We do it with, the, you know, with our youth, with our kids, we want to protect them from certain choices. And so sometimes that manifests as overbearing or protect. And yeah. Yet that like, we have to, my thing is I'm a woman of faith and I'm a woman of God. And so for me, mm -hmm. I can't, my faith, my biggest growing lesson in my faith has been that I don't get to compartmentalize and pick and choose when I want to walk in faith. If I'm going to say I'm going to walk in faith, I got to walk in faith all the time. And that doesn't just mean in my life. That means I got to walk in faith knowing that there's a plan for my daughter's life who is having a difficult time as a young teenage girl who I'm have to work through that shame and guilt of knowing that a lot of her trauma is manifesting because of my trauma and because right. of the things that I made. And so I, 
yeah, it's a cycle. And do I, do I walk in faith? How do I preach about walking in faith and trusting that there's a purpose for all of this trauma and all this stuff that happens in our life to other people? If I'm not willing to do that in my own life and rippling that down into my children's life and into my relationship and into my friendships and all of these things. And so my biggest growth has definitely been in the aspect of walking in faith and truthfully walking in faith and really outside of faith has been forgiveness because forgiveness has not only opened up a portal to like a portion of my healing that I didn't think that I could get to, but also me learning to forgive has opened up my purpose. And one of my purposes is to bring voices to importance to stories that are not just a person that's deemed the victim. Because when we right. really look at those, those root factors that you're talking about, when we look at, you know, I, and I've said this before, if you take my pimp, my, any of my pimps, vulnerability lists and you take my vulnerability list, they're almost identical and they're going to match up. And buyers, buyers are created through society and through porn culture and through um, objectification and through boys will be boys mentality and through, um, through patriarchy and through all of these systems that are in place that we all have a part in. And so why why don't people want to identify and why don't people, why are why is it easier for people to judge than it is to internal internally look and see how we can be a part of the solution is because once we look at ourselves and once we look at the structure of what's created exploitation, what's, created abuse what's created systems that we complain about we're all guilty and so if i I don't want to be guilty who wants to be guilty and be known to be a part of a problem like like sex trafficking i don't want to be identified with that and so we compartmentalize even on the purchasing side we like to say like well i don't go to the track and pick up a girl and buy sex all i do is watch porn and if we don't connect the two if we don't connect pornography and we don't connect exploitation and we don't connect objectification and all of this as sexual exploitation, then I'm not as guilty as the guy who's going to the track on the street. To yeah. Absolutely. It's different in my mind, or I'm not, I'm not the same as if I'm just a, if I'm just doing, if I'm just exploiting somebody who uh, my girlfriend who's willing, cause she was already a stripper. I'm not the same as that mom who pimps out her kid. Yeah. That's different when really, if we saw all same. Yeah, if we stop dividing and compartmentalizing and justifying our, to fit our narratives and our unique experiences, we'll see how alike we are and mm-hmm. how much we are all really a part of the problem. But also being a part of the problem means that we have an opportunity to be a part of the solution. And Absolutely. so I, I think that our culture is getting to this space where we're some of us are ready to embrace that kind of truth, but a lot of us are not. And the pushback from those of us that are not is so intense that it creates war and it creates division. And so how do we, you know, get to the solution and the roots of these things? It's not things like housing. It's not things like like food. It's not, we have those things. The problem is that the people that are in control of those things have a dark and a light that are battling. And the problem is that we have created a society based off of other people's trauma. And so in order for, for me to succeed, other people have to lose. And so in order for us to get to the place where resources work, like housing and sustainability and all of these things that we need as real solutions, jobs, careers, education, you know, all of these things, yes, they need to be addressed. But first and foremost, 
what has to be addressed is what has even created those systems in right. place. What's created systemic oppression? What's created racism? What has created mass incarceration? What has created right. exploitation as a whole? And when we can identify and address those things, then we can have people in place to run the resources with the their hearts in the right place in order for those resources to work. But we're trying to skip this step of humanity and we're not going to succeed when we're right. doing, if my biases are continuously judgmental. Well, I guess that's kind of a biases are judgmental. So if my judgments are continuously being placed on other people and I don't ever take the time to identify those and identify my place in the brokenness of the system, then I'm, going to continue to keep I'm never going to be able to find uh, the answer in any of the solutions and we we have to be willing to look at ourselves we have to be willing to heal that inner child in us we have to be able to address those things and we have to be able to give empathy to the people that have to that are going through that process as well and don't give them a time a time limit. I think that's the biggest thing too. Is I think people feel like there's a time limit. Well, you've been out for five years, so how, aren't you over it by now? You know, people don't understand that it's a lifelong journey. And I hear you talk a lot about, I, or I see your posts a lot about, like talking about how there's these organizations or these groups of people that are trying to make a difference, but yet they're not bringing us that are the actual survivors to the microphone to actually talk about our experiences. They're trying to save the world, but only based on their outside judgment and what they see. And that to me, I love how you bring attention to that because I, that is one of my things too, that like literally irks me. And so I love how you just like are always talking about that. And I, and I just love how you're honest about that. So how can you, other than like, you know, organizations like mine and yours who are actually from, you know, victims themselves, how do you, can people from the outside help? How can they help and be involved if they have never been through it themselves, but they want to make a difference? So I, I believe that it's kind of routing back to what I just talked about. First and foremost, you can't help anybody and so you've helped yourself and I think that too many people are trying to outward focus to deflect from their own healing and their own their own just their own shit yeah Yeah, like I did it for a long time too and it looks okay because it's like oh I'm helping people and I'm doing good doing this when really we are just extending the time until we have to address our own stuff right and so in our own shit under the rug until it mm -hmm. overflows you know yeah and I think so first and foremost I think the first step is to look inward and to see address what your biases are address where your judgments are address how you interact address to heart check yourself are you doing this in a mentality because you want to support people in their journeys are you doing this in a savior mentality where you get to come in and be the hero and be able to say i did and that people look at you as the hero instead of what your actual purpose was they're not looking at the outcome they're looking at oh well so and so did this they're a hero yeah, I yeah. do. I get to get the spotlight. Do I get? Am I doing this for a recognition? Not even a gen, a, a societal recognition. Am I doing this for a recognition within myself? Like, am I doing this right. so I feel better about some shit that I'm not willing to put out there that I'm feeling guilty of? So I think a, I think for I say that to say that I think a self check is first and foremost important before any of us, and that goes for survivors as well to self check what it is that we our intention 
our desire, like do a heart check and figure out what it is that you want to get involved and why, what, what is your why? Why first and foremost, because once you find your why, then you can identify which organizations and which groups of people align with your why. If I'm like, I just want to help people. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of ways to help people. So how are you going to effectively do that and not scatter yourself? If you don't know your why, if you know your your experiences to, to to pick your why, use your experiences to pick your why, instead of just like you said, going in there blind and like, well, I'll just help whoever. Well, no, like what are your experiences? What are the things that you can relate with? You know? And I think those are the ones that are actually going to make the difference. Yeah. And I think staying, um, for all of us, staying teachable is always necessary. Like yeah. it, just because you have things to learn doesn't mean that you don't have things to teach. And right. I think that people forget that you can do both simultaneously. And I think that stepping into what you're, everyone has a lane, like you don't have to go out and become an expert on an experience that you don't have. You use, utilize your experience and your, you share and do what, do what your experience helps with. If you are a business owner and you are great at owning your business, you don't have to go and change the trajectory of your life in order to be helpful. Your your niche is business and you get to teach people how to run successful businesses. Mm-hmm. And what you can learn though in the process, you don't have to change your niche, but what you can do is add to it. You can go and do it, learn how to do it in a trauma-informed way. You can mm-hmm. learn how to do it in an empathetic way. You can learn how to do it in an inclusive and representative way. And so you can add to the skills that you already have. And I think people get it mixed up when you're trying to do social work, uh, social justice work, that you have to just step into this experience that isn't your experience. And that's not true. You right. just need to add to what it is your life has already uh, manifested for you and master what it is that you're already great at and use that for the benefit of others. Because the thing is with things like sex trafficking and trauma and just trauma in general, all we, all the people need, all the individuals need in order to step forward is a hand up in opportunities. And that's really what it is. This is all about lack of equity and greed and the things that drive those things. So if, if you can do your part in creating equity, whatever that looks like and do that throughout your day, you're being a part of the solution. And honestly, before that, if you just are a, like, if you're just a good human, like that's enough advocacy in itself. You don't have to do anything extra. Just be kind to people and view people as human beings. And I always tell people, if we can learn to picture the person that we think we hate the most in our life, picture that person that hurt us the most, the person that we're like, Oh yeah, go to hell. Like, um, never like if we can picture that person and look at that person as an individual and see that they have a story of their life and we can find something to relate to, we then can view each other as human beings versus us versus them or them versus me yeah. um, versus good versus bad or whatever the case is. And yeah, once I can do that, not only does that open up opportunity for that person to feel forgiven and to be forgiven, and that way they can move forward from the worst things that they've ever done in their life. Maybe those things were too to me as an individual, but it also frees me up from not having to worry about holding that hate in my heart and holding that negativity in my body. And, tra- and negativity is just like trauma. It holds and it will manifest and mm-hmm. it will come out eventually. And so I, I don't... I don't think there's a step 
I don't like suggesting any steps beyond self-checking and like heart checking first and foremost. And then we can talk about where your lane is like, and then we can talk about how do you become uh, trauma informed by doing this? How do we then identify how to be effective with these specific populations? But before we heal internally, um, truly heal internally, I don't really think that we have any business trying to figure out how to heal somebody else's life. Can we hold people's hands and go through the process together? Absolutely. Because where there's no arrival, like I don't think that there's right. an arrival of like, oh, I'm healed, haha, and like this light shines. I think that it's okay to hold people's hands along the way and like, all right, we're about to do this together. Like it's yeah. scary. Um, and so I guess that would be, I don't know. I don't even no, know. I love that. Question. No, it was. I, I, I just, I love your, I love how you see things. I love how you're so honest about everything that you, with your own experiences and the things that you see with other people. Cause I think that that's, I think, like you said, I think society has such hard hearts because of what they've been taught that yeah. I, I really like that is what this world needs is more people like you who see that, who can look at a criminal and be like, whoa, whoa, it's hold on. They're not just a, criminal or rapist, you know, murder or whatever, they've been through trauma. They've been through shit. They have a story. They're hurt too. And so I, I just love how you bring that to light. Um, for people who don't know, can you just explain like, like what trauma informed is? Trauma informed is not being an asshole. <laughs> That's what trauma informed is. Um, no, trauma informed is going to be. So for me, I guess the easiest way to describe it is um, an empathetic and compassionate heart, not a sympathetic heart. Um, trauma informed to me is going to be thinking outside of our own experience and understanding that possible triggers and traumas manifest differently in every single person. And so being just mindful, everybody's stories, everybody's recovery is different. Yeah. Being mindful of your of self, being mindful of how I'm touching people or how I'm looking at people or how I, verbiage that I'm using or how my biases are manifesting in my conversation, in my eyes, in my body language. Um, being mindful of self, I think, is the easiest way for us to become trauma informed. And then also obviously educating on the specific traumas that certain populations and demographics experience through through different categories. Right. And so, um, I think empathetic, I guess the easiest way for me to put it is coming into a situation with an empathetic heart paired with compassion and never sympathy because nobody yeah. likes to be that person. Who's like the poor little duckling who is covered. Right. In who everyone feels bad for. Yeah. And yeah, nobody wants that for me. Trauma informed is empowering language is, mm -hmm. um, is again, thinking, thinking about the experience outside of your experience, remembering that your experience is just one type of experience. Your perspective is just one type of perspective. And to me, something that I use to be trauma informed is knowing that I can go into every single interaction coming out, learning something from that individual, no matter who that person is. And that puts us on an equal playing field because I'm not trying to speak at you. I'm not trying to speak to you. I'm trying to speak to learn from you and learn from your experience. So you can learn from anyone, even if you, you know, I think that's the thing too, is people are so easy to look down on people, but you can look, you can learn so much from people who, who you might think are down here 
You know what I mean? You might be able, you actually listen to them and give them that empathy and compassion. You can learn so much. And I think that's what, like you said, that's what people need to kind of go into situations is like, I'm not just here to help you. Like I'm here to te- help teach you, but I'm also here to be, uh, you know, to learn from you as well. Yeah. So. And there's obviously, I mean, there's like the actual like trauma informed trainings that people can take. And so yeah. that go into more depth of like, how do I actually equip myself to be trauma informed? But I, I think that it all, everything comes down to the matter of the heart and the matter of who we are at our core and the matter of how we treat people. If we are natural to our, if we are giving our natural embedded instincts that we have when we are innocent little babies, which is joy and laughter and being able to communicate, whether that's through cry, like as a baby, that's through crying, but like right. still are able to communicate when they're upset or when they're hungry, they're able to emotionally connect and communicate that. Right. And so if mm-hmm. we can get back to that core value system in ourselves mm-hmm. before the world jaded us, before the world kind of put all these blockages up of us, that's trauma, like informed Absolutely. approaches. And it's really just empathy. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Empathy is huge. I talk about that a lot with my trainings and things like that. Cause yeah, empathy is definitely such a big difference. There's such a big difference between empathy and sympathy. And as a certain, oh you know, when you're going through trauma and you're going through that situation, you don't need sympathy. You need the empathy and the compassion and that heart. And so I think that's definitely the game changer in everything. Last couple things. So what are, what helps you get through every day? Like from when you're struggling and the, like, cause obviously life still freaking sucks, right? Life still happens. Life still slaps you when you're down, whatever. When you are in those moments, what kind of, what do you go to and what helps you know, I like know how you talk about your faith and I love that other than, you know, along with your faith, what helps you kind of get through those moments so you don't go back to your old ways, at least as of now. Yeah. So outside of prayer, I'm always, I always have to go to prayer. Yeah, for sure. Prayer has saved myself and probably some other people a few times. So you don't mind me asking because I'm I'm Christian too. I'm I'm um, you know a born again Christian. What? How long have you like? How long have you been in the faith? Like, have you always had kind of the background of faith, or was did that not happen? No, no, I didn't go to church. I we didn't talk about God. You know, it's weird because I. I don't remember being connected with God, but then when I have like random Facebook memories from like eight or 10 years ago that pop up on my Facebook, I am talking about faith. I think mm. that somewhere along there, I lost didn't know what it. to call it. Yeah. And so I'm talking about it, but I, I've been baptized three times because I just mm. didn't understand baptism. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I've been baptized three times too. So <laughs> I know I'm like, this isn't working. Like, let's do this again. Cause like, yeah. that. like, I don't know what's going on, but no, I know I did that. Too. I did it when I was young and <laughs> I was like a little, little. I did it when I was like junior high and then I did actually like three years ago. So yeah, I'm totally with Girl, you. Girl, I did all mine as adults. I'm like, wait, reset, <laughs> like, hold on, dip me again like and I tried it all <laughs> different waters like I tried it at the water at the church I tried it at the beach yeah. I tried it at the bathtub I'm like oh my gosh but now <laughs> I yeah now yeah, dip awesome. me again okay. now I understand the concept of of what that represented and I plan to get baptized one more time um, my husband and I when my husband comes home we have our ceremony. We want to get baptized together at our wedding ceremony, which I think will be a beautiful thing. So, but I say that to say that I, so I originally came into my faith because I won't lie that it, I, I came into it because that's what people told me would work. And yeah. so I stepped into that, but then I actually had like an experience. Yeah. Like God 
scared the shit out of me. And I was like, oh, what is this? And so that's yeah. been when I started recognizing and surrendering. And so it's been, a, a, I would say, four years that I've been faithfully turning to, to God. But most recently, like about the last two years, I feel like my faith has really I've under, really dived into really understanding what faith is um, outside of religion and really dived into spirituality. Right. Um, I think you have to think that I think two people, that's two very different things, religion yeah. and then having a relationship with God itself. So yeah, yeah I, I agree. Yeah, very awesome. But I can I can proclaim that when I connected spiritually, my my life it's not that anything got magically better. It's just that my sense of peace and my understanding and my growth has tremendously changed. And the relationships around me have grown. And I would say your your support system, I'm sure, is huge helpful. Yeah, definitely. I think outside of prayer, I I enjoy like I enjoy the gym, so I like to go out and burn steam and I also really like food and so it's a good balance because I don't really leave <laughs> I just kind of stay maintain I'm so, with you too. working out or being physical like I love to play softball still I'll go shoot hoops with my son just stuff like that um engaging with my with my son my son was I used to feel guilty for saying it but my son is really my saving grace because it was like a second chance to be a mom how old is he he's six Oh, okay, so he's very little still. Yeah, Same as my daughter. My daughter's six. Yeah, aw, that good age. Crazy. It is. <laughs> yeah, age. it's they're starting to discover themselves, and oh my goodness, right? All the questions and the attitude. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you're just talking for nothing. Oh my gosh, thank you. My husband and I were looking at each other yesterday. I'm like, I don't think she stopped talking in about 45 minutes. She just continued talking. <laughs> So. It's legit. And he knows it too. He'll be like, mom, mom, I don't, I don't have anything to say, but I just, I'm, I'm still talking and <laughs> be quiet. Like, like, it's okay. Yeah. That's but, awesome. You know, um, there is a lot of things that I can't say a lot of time, a lot of firsts that I miss with my daughters that I can't ever get back, unfortunately. And at first, like I said, I felt really guilty. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, like my daughters must feel like I love my son more and this and that, but I get to be I get to do it again. I get to be a better parent. All and they get to see that. I feel like it's huge. They get to see that you're different than with your son than you were with them because I'm sure they want that. They don't, you know, they want to see that you're a healthy mom and all of that. So I, I think that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. And it's been super healing. It's been, it's been a, it's been an interesting process. Something that I think is needed to talk more amongst, especially the survivor community is that parenting guilt and things like that because you know, I've all my sons first, I've got to be a part of those. I've got to see him go. I got to go take him to kindergarten and see his first tooth, you know, right. I've got to take him to the dentist and been having to sit with him in the hospital. And like, I didn't do those things with my daughter and my daughters. And so I turned to my son a lot for comfort and for just that reminder, you know, I'll put my phone down and tell him to remind me to put my phone down and we'll go outside and play or just me going like he has bowling in 45 minutes. He'll go, go bowling. Mm-hmm. And he does, you know, I take him to his jujitsu classes and his kickboxing and, and just take him on date nights and things like that. And so really um, let him pour into me without him even knowing that that's what he's doing. It's and, just a reminder of second chances. It really is. Yeah. And my husband is a very supportive person. We, you know, our dynamic is very interesting. The gentleman that I was talking about, you know, that got me into this life, that's actually my current husband. He's 
been, he's, God has worked tremendously in his life through his incarceration and. Okay. Wait, 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 hold on. I did hold on. Hold on. I'm like, hold on, back up. So wait, he was the one who, which one was he? I'm trying to remember. The first guy that got me into, into, he was my turnout. So. So he was the one that would roofie you when you were like 15? No, 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 not that one. Sorry. Oh, Okay. I didn't care. So the one after that. The one in my 20s, the one that I met. So the one that took you the first time Mm -hmm. to when you drove in your car for the first time. Oh, then you guys reconnected Mm -hmm. years later and he was obviously incarcerated. Yeah, he's been incarcerated, but he'll be home next year. He'll he'll have served a 10 and a half year sentence. So he's been incarcerated his whole adult life. And we have a really, our journey together is going to be a, huge testimony for a lot of people because there's a lot of people that have to hide that part of their relationship um, or have children with people that they were involved or marry their ex-clients or whatever the case is there's a lot of different dynamics that people aren't allowed to talk about because it's not it's so taboo or whatever and so I believe that because he's allowed God to work in his life um He's an amazing, amazing man. He's a strong man of God. He, there's certain things in me that I felt like were broken through him that he has been willing to come back into my life and heal. And I feel like Mm. outside of God, he was the only person that probably could have healed those things. And in being willing to be a part of my healing, it's opened up a lot of his healing to see, you know, why he wouldn't ever want to go back to that lifestyle and see what the results of my life have been. And he knows his part in that. And so him being now my partner who has to deal with the repercussions of my traumas, knowing like, Oh, like I see like the healing journey that you've had to go through and then his own healing journey. Right. right. And the traumas that he endured in the game and the traumas that he's endured in, car- in incarceration and the guilt that he has to hold on to, in the things that he's done to people through his, you know, just like we have guilt. Well, I have, I won't speak for anybody else. I have guilt. I did some bad things to some clients and I did some bad things to other girls and to some pimps. And our journey is super unique, but it's also super powerful. And that's, yeah, I want to at least, I'm speechless because I think that is, I mean, I really do think that is amazing. That's an amazing testimony of, not only showing that people can truly change and that people can truly turn their life around, but that they get, again, the whole forgiveness aspect. I think that that's amazing. And did you guys reconnect while he was incarcerated? Yeah, he's been incarcerated since 2012. Um, okay, so then you so reconnected. He has, and we had reconnected, then we reseparated because he wasn't fully, we weren't at the same place. I had some growing to do. And God, I pray, I prayed for him this is how this is when God revealed himself to me in this way like I prayed for things in Corey that Corey never knew that I prayed for so in this in our time when I told him like hey don't call me like I love you I'm gonna pray for you but you need to not call me anymore because his mind wasn't fully transitioned mm-hmm. and I was already doing my advocacy work and things like that during those years that we didn't talk I was praying for him all the time and I prayed for very specific attributes for him to connect with God in. And one day he just wrote me a letter and said all of the things that I had been praying. And he didn't know that I had prayed those things. And so from that point forward, we built a friendship and then we built, uh, we realized like our journeys, like we're meant to 
to cry. Like you're supposed to be my husband and mm-hmm. I'm your wife and it's a, we're in a, you know, people will judge and be like, Oh, that's trauma bonding and like unhealthy. And I'm like, actually we're probably one of the most healthy couples that exists because we've had to work through all those traumas. These traumas and these triggers. And we have so much further to go. And when he comes home, he's going to be a very critical voice in ending the cycle of exploitation to the young men. And the, cause somebody has yeah. to talk to the young men who become pimps and become buyers. Somebody has to come talk to them. Now what he wants to do is kind of is use his voice to teach yeah. other men. That yeah. is, I think that is freaking amazing. Like I got yeah. like chills. I think that's He'll so have, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, this way it's we're gonna have a book. We're actually gonna start a podcast here soon. Um, when he is out, I want to I want to have you guys both on and tell your guys a story together because I think that oh, that is just so. It's like there's such a beautiful story. It's actually funny. So I went to church about a month ago and it was this couple and they were almost the exact same, very similar situation. So, but it was drugs. They met when they were younger, 15 and he was 16, got pregnant, all this stuff. He was in and out of gangs. Anyway, long story short, he ended up in prison. During prison, they would talk and he ended up being saved and told her that he wanted her to start going to church. So he actually was saved first and asked her Mm -hmm. if, you know, when I get out, if we're going to be together, I need you to like work on your faith and your relationship with God. So she like walked into church by herself one day and started Uh going and now they're, so he actually was released um, less than a year ago. And now they're both going around to churches and telling their story. And I think it's so cool. I love that. I think it is. I got chills too. Yeah. I'm so (laughs) excited and it makes me, and it makes you, uh, once you're in this space of like the healing journey, like the real healing journey, which is like an everyday thing, right? It makes you excited for life. It makes you even excited for the things that you like the obstacles, you know, you're going to face because you know that those obstacles equate to lessons and equate yeah. to growth. lessons equate to growth. And so I, it's just this crazy space of like peace that I never knew possible because I lived a life of chaos first. I mean, since I was, I don't know. Right? Since I probably alive, you were born in a trauma. Uh, I mean, to be honest, yeah, born into 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 just chaos and just instability, and and to now, and I think you know other survivors to just remember that that first experience with like peace and just being still and being able to just be. That's probably where your defense needs to be the highest because that's when you're going to panic. And that's when you're going to be like, wait, where's the chaos? And if there's no chaos, you're going to create that chaos. And I've actually excited. talked exactly about that. Cause a hundred percent, I actually think I did a, I did a podcast episode on that because I said, you know, for so many, my whole life, I was a victim. That's all I knew was I was a victim. Desi, the victim, Desi, you know, this and that. And so when I wasn't that anymore and things started changing, I would self-sabotage. And I had one therapist who was, you know, she's always been there for since I was in rehab and she would call me out and be like, Desi, you're self-sabotaging because my life was doing well. And I didn't know what that, I didn't know what you're to do like, that. wait, hold I'm on. Like, I'm actually happy. Like I'm happy and I'm right. really like happy. I don't want to kill myself. I don't want to. Like, what the hell? Like, okay, like, what's I'm happening? Yeah. And so it was so uncomfortable. And so I, I 100% agree. Like you said, like it, people self sabotage when they start to, when they start to panic, when things start to go good. But in those moments, really try to embrace it and be grateful of those things because. And that, yeah. Yeah. And that- and when and and this and that's why the support system relationships are important because in those moments you're going to need people to fall back on who are going to be able to not not talk you out of that space but just be able to hold space for remind you remind you too yeah and when you get but when you get through that 
and you realize like, oh, like I could have a life that is peaceful. Like I can yep. have this all the time. I and that's not happy. to say that life is perfect and that things aren't going to come up and shit doesn't happen. But that's to say that through those things, that things are happening, um, you get to experience peace still knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel. When you haven't seen the light at the end of the tunnel, you don't know that it's there. And so exactly. you got to let that, you got to let the light appear and you got to and then once you even see a glimmer that's when you can start believing you don't have to believe overnight but you can believe that oh there's a little bit of hope and so i hope that you know in everything in all in all i think that the reason that anybody shares like why the why do people come and share their trauma like why are you revisiting that all the time like why do you want to talk about these things and i think some people mix that up for attention seeking when really it's like if you can be the person that provides that little glimmer of hope just because someone mm-hmm. relates to what you're saying and it doesn't have to be my story it doesn't have to be that you were sex trafficked it it, it just means that you have to relate to something in my story whether that right. means the instability in my childhood or the neglect from my mom or the desire to, to want something from my dad that I didn't have or whatever, you can relate to that. That gives you a glimmer of hope. And that could mean you get to your healing one day sooner than I get got to mine. And that yeah. to me is like the purpose that makes trauma, that makes everything, we all go through trauma. And if it's not in vain, if it has a purpose and so right. allowing that purpose to manifest and knowing that, who, how dare we think that we are so individualized to think that our purpose is the only purpose that matters. And we get to look at somebody else and say like, oh, your purpose, your shit that you did was way worse than mine. So your purpose doesn't matter. And you don't, right. get, you don't get to heal and you don't get to, to come you out. Are we to decide that. Absolutely. Right. And so I think that I, I appreciate not think I appreciate you know, you being willing to not only be willing to face your own stuff, but also hold a platform to hear people's perspectives and be open to the fact that people just need, people just need relatability and people need vulnerability. And that's what you're helping people create and helping people know that it's okay through your platform is vulnerability. So I commend you for that and commend you for your healing and just you being able to face your shit and, own it so and move forward. And Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of what you just said with the darkness is, you know, I, when I explain it to people, why people always say like candle in a dark room, that's such a powerful name, you know? And it's because yeah. that was my thing. You know, I was, I remember being literally in black, like darkest of darkness and having no hope and having like, what is my, like, this can't be life. Like this cannot be like why God put me on this earth. Like what is my purpose in this? And I literally remember praying and begging God, like, what am I here for? Like, why do you, why won't you let me die? You know, cause I would try to kill myself and I wouldn't succeed. And I would be so frustrated with God. Right. And I was like, what good is happening? Care. Yeah. I'm like, you know, in the dark, I'm darkness. not even good at this. Like, I, oh, I literally have said that before. I'm like, I can't even kill myself. Right. No, like legit. Like God, I, I said that, yeah, I said that too. Like how you fucked that one up, Jamie. Right. Like, <laughs> no, no, it's, not, it's not to minimize. Not that it's a joke at all, but it's, it's true. It's true. It's true. It's like when you failed, you feel like you failed it so much, and then you can't even succeed in that. It's kind of like, okay, now I really do suck. Like, what the hell, you know? But like now that I look back, it's like I was in my darkest of darkness, and if I wouldn't have hung on and searched for that light, not only within myself, but within, like you said, hope of other things and other 
people and whatever it is, I found that light within myself, which guided me out of that darkness of darkness. It was a little tiny candle. It was literally, you know, a little flicker, but I held on to that and I, you know, helped guide myself out of there. And I feel like that's what I try to tell people. If you just keep hanging on that little speck of light is what's going to help guide you out of that darkness. You just have to just have hope of it. So Awesome. Well, I just have to say that this is seriously probably one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. I have loved talking to you. Um, I just love your input of everything. I love your story. I love that, like the ending of your story, like so far, of like your whole thing with your husband. I just think that's incredible. And I'm serious. When he gets out, we are going to do an episode together because I just would love to Oh, he already story. knows. He's like, he's not even ready. Like, I'm like, babe, you don't even know the Snapchat filters you're about to be on. Oh, right. All over social media. Put him on, tell him he's at the top of my list as soon as he gets out. But I'm looking yeah, forward to it. So I am just super excited to connect with you more and hopefully we can do some more things in the future together. Yeah, um, I just love what you do and the things that you do with your organization. So you guys, if you do not follow Sisters of the Streets, please, please, please go to their Instagram right now. So it's sisters underscore underscore, underscore the underscore streets. So sisters of the streets with underscore between each word. Um, yes. But look at, look them up, follow her page. I mean, they are seriously just everything that they bring on their page. I just love. So please go check them out. If you are not following candle in a dark room, also do that. Thank you so much for being here today. And we will talk to you guys next time. Mm-hmm.